Chapter 8 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 8 To Francis. This chapter can be written only by Gilbert himself. It might seem that he had no words left for an emotion heightened beyond the love of his friends and the joyous acceptance of existence. But in these letters he shows the truth of his own theory, that to love each thing separately strengthens the power of loving. To have tried to love everyone is, as he tells Francis, no bad preparation for loving her. The emotion of falling in love had both intensified his appreciation of all things and cast for him a vivid light on past, present, and future, so that in the last of these letters he sketches his life down to the moment when a new life begins. I am looking over the sea and endeavoring to reckon the estate I have to offer you. As far as I can make out, my equipment for starting on a journey to fairyland consists of the following items. First, a straw hat. The oldest part of this admirable relic shows traces of pure Norman work. The vandalism of Cromwell's soldiers has left us little of the original hatband. Second, a walking stick. Very knobby and heavy. Admirably fitted to break the head of any denizen of Suffolk who denies that you are the noblest of ladies, but of no other manifest use. Third, a copy of Walt Whitman's poems, once nearly given to Salter, but quite forgotten. It has his name in it still, with an affectionate inscription from his sincere friend Gilbert Chesterton. I wonder if he will ever have it. Fourth, a number of letters from a young lady containing everything good and generous and loyal and holy and wise that isn't in Walt Whitman's poems. Fifth, an unwieldy sort of pocket knife, the blades mostly having an edge of a more varied and picturesque outline than is provided by the prosaic cutter. The chief element, however, is a thing to take stones out of a horse's hoof. What a beautiful sensation of security it gives one to reflect that if one should ever have money enough to buy a horse, and should happen to buy one, and the horse should happen to have a stone in its hoof, that one is ready. One stands prepared with a defiant smile. Sixth, passing from the last miracle of practical foresight, we come to a box of matches. Every now and then I strike one of these, because fire is beautiful and burns your fingers. Some people think this waste of matches, the same people who object to the building of cathedrals. Seventh, about three pounds in gold and silver, the remains of one of Mr. Unwin's bursts of affection, those explosions of spontaneous love for myself, which, such is the perfect order and harmony of his mind, occur at startling exact intervals of time. Eighth, a book of children's rhymes, in manuscript, called The Weather Book, about three-quarters finished and destined for Mr. Nutt. This was Greybeard's at play. I've been working at it fairly steady, which I think jolly credible under the circumstances. One can't put anything interesting in it. They'll understand those things when they grow up. Ninth, a tennis racket. Nay, start not. It is part of a new regime, and the only new and neat-looking thing in the museum. We'll soon mellow it, like the straw hat. My brother and I are teaching each other lawn tennis. Tenth, a soul, hitherto idle and omnivorous, 
but now happy enough to be ashamed of itself. Eleventh, a body, equally idle and quite equally omnivorous, absorbing tea, coffee, claret, seawater, and oxygen to its own perfect satisfaction. It is happiest swimming, I think, the sea being about a convenient size. Twelfth, a heart, mislaid somewhere, and that is about all the property of which an inventory can be made at present. After all, my tastes are stoically simple. A straw hat, a stick, a box of matches, and some of his own poetry. What more does a man require? The city of Felix Stowe, as seen by the local prophet from the neighboring mountain peak, does not strike the eye as having anything uncanny about it. At least I imagine that it requires rather careful scrutiny before the eerie curl of a chimney pot or the elfin wink of a lonely lamppost brings home to the startled soul that it is really the city of a fearful folk. That the inhabitants are not human in the ordinary sense is quite clear. Yet it has only just begun to dawn on me, after staying a week in the town of unreason, with its monstrous landscape and grave, unmeaning customs, do I seem to be raving. Let me give my experiences. I am bound to admit that I do not think I am good at shopping. I generally succeed in getting rid of money, but other observances, such as bringing away the goods that I've paid for and knowing what I've bought, I often pass over as secondary. But to shop in a town of ordinary tradesmen is one thing. To shop in a town of raving lunatics is another. I set out one morning happy and hopeful with the intention of buying A. A tennis racket B. Some tennis balls C. Some tennis shoes D. A ticket for a tennis ground I went to the shop pointed out by some villager, probably mad, and went in and said, I believe they kept tennis rackets. The young man smiled and assented. I suggested that he might show me some. The young man looked positively alarmed. Oh, he said, we haven't got any not got any here i asked where oh they're out you know all round he explained wildly and with a graphic gesture in the direction of the sea and the sky all out round we've left them all round at places to this day i don't know what he meant but i merely asked when they would quit these weird retreats he said in an hour and in an hour i called again were they in now well not in not in just yet he said with a sort of feverish confidentialness as if he wasn't quite sure are they still all out at places i asked with restrained humor oh no he said with a burst of reassuring pride they are only out there out behind you know i hope my face expressed my beaming comprehension of the spot alluded to eventually at a third visit the rackets were produced none of them i was told by my brother were of any first-class maker so that was outside the question. The choice was between some good, neat, first-handed instruments which suited me and some seedy-looking second-hand objects with plain deal handles, which would have done in a pinch. I thought that perhaps it would be better to get a good-class racket in London and content myself for the present with economizing on one of the second-hand monuments of depression. So I asked the price. Ten six was the price of the second-hand article. I thought this large for the tool, and wondered if the first-hand rackets were much dearer. What price for the first-hand? Seven-six, said the creature, cheery as a bird. I did not faint. I am strong. 
I rejected the article, which was dearer, because it had been hallowed by human possession, and accepted the cheap new crude racket. Except the newness, there was no difference between them whatever. I then asked the smiling maniac for balls. He brought me a selection of large red globes, nearly as big as Dutch cheeses. I said, are these tennis balls? He said, oh, did you want tennis balls? I said, yes. They often come in handy at tennis. The goblin was, however, quite impervious to satire, and I left him endeavoring to draw my attention to his wares in general, particularly to some zinc baths, which he seemed to think should form part of the equipment of a tennis player. Never before or since have I met a being of that order and degree of creepiness. He was a nightmare of unmeaning idiocy. But some mention ought to be made of the old man at the entrance to the tennis ground, who opened his mouth in parables on the subject of the fee for playing there. He seemed to have been wound up to make only one remark. It's expense. Under these circumstances, the attempt to discover whether the sixpence covered a day's tennis or a week or fifty years was rather baffling. At last I put down the sixpence. This seemed to galvanize him into life. He looked at the clock, which was indicating five past eleven, and said, It's sixpence an hour, so you'll be all right till two. I fled screaming. Since then I have examined the town more carefully and feel the presence of something nameless. There is a claw curl in the sea-bent trees, an eye-gleam in the dark flints in the wall that is not of this world. When we set up house, darling, honeysuckle, porch, you-clipped hedge, bees, poetry, and eight shillings a week, I think you will have to do the shopping. Particularly at Felixstone, there was a great and glorious man who said, Give us the luxuries of life, and we will dispense with the necessities. That, I think, would be a splendid motto to write in letters of brown gold over the porch of our hypothetical home. There will be a sofa for you, for example, but no chairs, for I prefer the floor. There will be a select store of chocolate creams to make you do the carp with, and the rest will be bread and water. We will each retain a suit of evening dress for great occasions, and at other times clothe ourselves in the skins of wild beasts. How pretty you would look, which would fit your taste in furs and be economical. I have sometimes thought it would be very fine to take an ordinary house, a very poor commonplace house in West Kensington, say, and make it symbolic. Not artistic, heaven, oh heaven forbid. My blood boils when I think of the affronts put by knock-kneed pictorial epicures on the strong, honest, ugly, patient shapes of necessary things, the brave old bones of life. There are aesthetic pottering prigs, who can look on a saucepan with one tear of joy or sadness, mongrel decadence, who can see no dignity in the honorable scars of a kettle. So they concentrate all their house decoration on colored windows that nobody looks out of and vases of lilies that everybody wishes out of the way. No, my idea, which is much cheaper, is to make a house really allegoric, really explain its own essential meaning. Mystical or ancient sayings should be inscribed on every object. The more prosaic the object, the better, and the more coarsely and rudely the inscription was traced, the better. Hast thou sent the rain upon the earth should be inscribed on the umbrella stand, perhaps on the umbrella. 
even the hairs of your head are all numbered, would give a tremendous significance to one's hairbrushes. The words about living water would reveal the music and sanctity of the sink, while our God is consuming fire might be written over the kitchen grate to assist the mystic musings of the cook. Shall we ever try that experiment, dearest? Perhaps not, for no words would be golden enough for the tools you had to touch. You would be beauty enough for one house. By all means, let us have bad things in our dwelling and make them good things. I shall offer no objection to your having an occasional dragon to dinner or a penitent griffin to sleep in the spare bed. The image of you taking a Sunday school of little devils is pleasing. They will look up, first in savage wonder, then in vague respect. They will see the most glorious and noble lady that ever lived since their prince tempted Eve, with a halo of hair and great heavenly eyes that seem to make the good at the heart of things almost too terribly simple, and naked for the sons of flesh, and as they gaze their tails will drop off, and their wings will sprout, and they will become angels in six lessons. I cannot profess to offer any elaborate explanation of your mother's disquiet, but I admit it does not wholly surprise me. You see, I happen to know one factor in the case, and one only, of which you are wholly ignorant. I know you. I know one thing which has made me feel strange before your mother. I know the value of what I take away. I feel, in a weird moment, like the angel of death. You say you want to talk to me about death. My views about death are bright, brisk, and entertaining. And when Azrael takes a soul, it may be to other and brighter worlds, like those whither you and I go together. The transformation called death may be something as beautiful and dazzling as the transformation called love. It may make the dead man happy, just as your mother knows that you are happy. But nonetheless, it is a transformation, and sad sometimes for those left behind. A mother whose child is dying can hardly believe that in the inscrutable unknown there is anyone who can look to it as well as she. And if a mother cannot trust her child easily to God Almighty, shall I be so mean as to be angry because she cannot trust it easily to me? I tell you, I have stood before your mother and felt like a thief. I know you are not going to part, neither physically, mentally, morally, or spiritually, but she sees a new element in your life, wholly from outside. Is it not natural, given her temperament, that you should find her perturbed? Oh, dearest, dearest Francis, let us always be very gentle to older people. Indeed, darling, it is not they who are the tyrants, but we. They may interrupt our building in the scaffolding stages. We turn their house upside down when it is their final home and rest. Your mother certainly would have been worried if you had been engaged to the archangel Michael, who indeed is bearing his disappointment very well. How much more when you are engaged to an aimless, tactless, reckless, unbrushed, strange-hatted, opinionated scarecrow who has suddenly walked into the vacant place. I could have prophesied her unrest. Wait, and she will calm down all right, dear. God comfort her. I dare not. Gilbert Keith Chesterton was born of comfortable but honest parents on the top of Camden Hill, Kensington. He was christened at St. George's Church, which stands just under that more imposing building, the Waterworks Tower. 
This place was chosen apparently in order that the whole available water supply might be used in the intrepid attempt to make him a member of Christ, a child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. Of the early years of this remarkable man, few traces remain. One of his earliest recorded observations was the simple exclamation, full of heartfelt delight, Look at baby, funny baby. Here we see the first hint of that ineffable conversational modesty, that shy social self-effacement, which has ever hidden his light under a bushel. His mother also recounts with apparent amusement an incident connected with his imperious demand for his father's top hat. Give me that hat, please. No, dear, you mustn't have that hat. Give that hat, no, dear. If you don't give it to me, I'll say at. An exquisite selection in the manner of hats has indeed always been one of the great man's hobbies. When he had drawn pictures of all the blinds and tablecloths and towels and walls and window panes, it was felt that he required a larger sphere. Consequently, he was sent to Mr. Buescher, who gave him desks and copy books and Latin grammars and atlases to draw pictures on. He was far too innately conscientious not to use these materials to draw on. To other uses, asserted by some to belong to these objects, he paid little heed. The only really curious thing about his school life was that he had a weird and quite involuntary habit of getting French prizes. They were the only ones he ever got, and he never tried to get them. But though the thing was quite mysterious to him, and though he made every effort to avoid it, it went on, being evidently a part of some occult, natural law. For the first half of his time at school, he was very solitary and futile. He never regretted the time, for it gave him two things, complete mental self-sufficiency and a comprehension of the psychology of outcasts. But one day, as he was roaming about a great naked building land, which he haunted in the play hours, rather like an outlaw in the woods, he met a curious, agile youth with hair brushed up off his head. Seeing each other, they promptly hit each other simultaneously and had a fight. Next day, they met again and fought again. These Homeric conflicts went on for many days, till one morning, in the crisis of some insane grapple, the subject of this biography quoted, like a war chant, something out of Macaulay's lays. The other started and relaxed his hold. They gazed at each other. Then the foe quoted the following line. In this land of savages, they knew each other. For the next two hours, they talked books. They have talked books ever since. The boy was Edmund Clarehue Bentley. The incident just narrated is the true and real account of the first and deepest of our hero's male connections, but another was to ensure probably equally profound and far more pregnant with awful and dazzling consequences. Bentley always had a habit of trying to do things well. Twelve years of the other's friendship has not cured him of this. Being seized with a peculiar desire to learn conjuring, he had made the acquaintance of an eerie and supernatural young man who instructed him in the black art a gaunt, Mephistophelian sort of individual, who our subject, half-thought, was a changeling. Our subject has not quite got over the idea yet, though for practical social purposes he calls him Lucian Oldershaw. Our subject met Lucian Oldershaw that night, as Shakespeare says, there was a star. These three persons soon became known through the length and breadth of St. Paul's school as the founders of a singular brotherhood, 
It was called the JDC. No one, we believe, could ever have had better friends than did the hero of this narrative. We wish that we could bring before the reader the personality of all the knights of that eccentric round table. Most of them are known already to the reader. Even the subject himself is possibly known to the reader. Bertram, who seems somehow to have been painted by Van Dyke, a somber and stately young man, a blend of cavalier and Puritan, with the physique of a military father and the views of an ethical mother and a soul of his own, which, for sheer simplicity, is something staggering. Fernet, with an oriental and inscrutable placidity, varied every now and then with dazzling agility and Meredithian humor. Waldo Davignor, who masks with complete fashionable triviality a Hebraic immutability of passion, tried in a more ironical and bitter service than his father Jacob. Lawrence and Morris Solomon, who show another side of the same people, the love of home, the love of children, the meek and malicious humor, the tranquil service of a law. Salter, who shows how beautiful and ridiculous a combination can be made of the most elaborate mental cultivation and artistic sensibility, and an omniscience and a receptiveness and a humility extraordinary in any man. These were his friends. May he be forgiven for speaking of them at length and with pride. Some day we hope the reader may know them all. He knew these people. He knew their friends. He heard Mildred Wayne say blog, and he thought it was a funny name. He had been told that he would ever pronounce it with the accents of tears and passion, he would have said in his pride, that the name was not suitable for that purpose. But there are uk ep emen. He went for a time to an art school. There he met a great many curious people. Many of the men were horrible blackguards. It was not exactly that so they naturally found each other interesting. He went through some rather appalling discoveries about human life, and the final discovery was that there is no devil. No, not even such a thing as a bad man. One pleasant Saturday afternoon, Lucian said to him, I'm going to take you to see the blogs. The what? said the unhappy man. The blogs, said the other, darkly. Naturally, assuming that it was the name of a public house, he reluctantly followed his friend. He came to a small front garden. If it was a public house, it was not a business-like one. They raised the latch, they rang the bell, and if the bell was not in the close time just then, no flower in the pots winked, no brick grinned, no sign in heaven or earth warned him. The birds sang on in the trees. He went in. The first time he spent an evening at the blogs, there was no one there. That is to say, there was a worn but fiery little lady in a gray dress who didn't approve of catastrophic solutions of social problems. That, he understood, was Mrs. Blog. There was a long, blonde, smiling young person who seemed to think him quite off his head and who was addressed as Ethel. There were two people whose meaning and status he couldn't imagine, one of whom had a big nose and the other hadn't. Lastly, there was a Juno-like creature in a tremendous hat who eyed them all the time half-wildly, like a shying horse, because, he said, he was quite happy. By the second time he went there, he was plumped down on a sofa beside a being of whom he had a vague impression that brown hair grew at intervals all down her like a caterpillar. Once in the course of conversation, she looked straight at him, and he said to himself as plainly as if he had read it in a book, if I had anything to do with this girl, I should go on my knees to her. If I spoke with her, she would never deceive me. 
If I depended on her, she would never deny me. If I loved her, she would never play with me. If I trusted her, she would never go back on me. If I remembered her, she would never forget me. I may never see her again. Goodbye. It was all said in a flash, but it was all said. Two years, as they say in the playbills, is supposed to elapse. And here is the subject of this memoir, sitting on a balcony above the sea. The time, evening. He is thinking of the whole bewildering record of which the foregoing is a brief outline. He sees how far he has gone wrong, and how idle and wasteful and wicked he has often been. How miserably unfitted he is for what he is called upon to be. Let him now declare it, and hereafter forever hold his peace. But there are four lamps of thanksgiving always before him. The first is for his creation out of the same earth with such a woman as you. The second is that he has not, with all his faults, gone after strange women. You cannot think how a man's self-restraint is rewarded in this. The third is that he has tried to love everything alive, a dim preparation for loving you. And the fourth is, but no words can express that, here ends my previous existence. Take it. It led me to you. End of chapter 8